What's in the bag? A shark or something? Put the bunny back in the box. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. You're listening to the Quick Cage tonight. And Frank, which Nick Cage movie are you going to talk about tonight? So tonight we're going to tackle, um, I don't know, kind of a white whale maybe of uh, the Quick Cage. Um, I don't know, Nick Cage's filmography in uh, 1990s Wild at Heart, uh, directed by David Lynch. Um, co-starring Laura Dern, Willem Dafoe, um, Diane Ladd, Isabella Rosalini, Harry Dean Stanton, uh, Crispin Glover, a host of other um, actors and actresses that Lynch would work with repeatedly through the Twin Peaks franchise and other movies um, throughout his career. Um, it's a adaptation of a novel from the mid to late 80s. I can't remember when. Um, following i don't know if adventures is the right word but the travels of um uh nick cage and laura dern's characters um sailor and uh lulu as they um basically flee lulu's mother who has tried to have uh nick cage killed because he rejected her sexual advances in the bathroom um nick cage kills the man so they go on the run because he's now wanted for murder or manslaughter because of self-defense um and they have a series of weird gross underbelly of america wizard of oz hinged adventures um culminating in um the mother attempting to put a hit out on Nick Cage through her former lover, who's a gangster the Cage used to work for. Um, Willem Dafoe plays the would-be assassin. Um, one of the most, in one of the most graphic scenes in the movie, he gets his head blown off accidentally by a shotgun. Um, in the end, Cage is arrested, spends six years in jail. Lulu's pregnant and gives birth to their child. Um, Lulu finally breaks with her mother. Um, and they end up, you know, together in the end. Uh, it's very much, uh, I don't even know. It's very much like tinged with things that Lynch is very fond of. So a lot of like 1950s culture, like pop culture, um, mixed with what you can tell would become like his calling card um, over the course of the next, you know, 30 years which is um, subtle surrealism in terms of scenes that have like a semblance of reality, but are still off center enough where you feel uncomfortable watching them. Um, in terms of interactions with denizens of a trailer park, um, things that they encounter on the roadside. I mean, you can see a lot of 
elements of Twin Peaks, number one. Because um, at this point, when he filmed this movie, um, I believe he had just filmed the pilot for Twin Peaks. Uh, so you can see a lot of stuff that he pulled into that, that Twin Peaks mythology, um, as well as things like Lost Highway, um, Mulholland Drive. Like, there's a lot of imagery and um, technique that feel like they were birthed in his making this movie. Because um, even though, you know, so even though Blue Velvet is, has like that psychosexual element to it, and also kind of like a sense of the, I don't know, the unseen or whatever you want to call it. Like you, you, you use the word numinous, I guess, to describe like the holy aspect of that. So mm-hmm. whatever the opposite of that is, like the un- uh, unknowable demonic, mm-hmm. like undercurrent. Um, Wild at Heart is much more surreal, I think, than um, Blue Velvet. Um, yeah. I hated this movie for the majority of my, my life. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first saw Wild at Heart, so probably probably 93 would be my guess when I saw this for the okay. first time. My knowledge of Lynch, because I didn't, I didn't watch Twin Peaks until we watched Twin Peaks together, basically. And, okay. Uh, early 2000s so i was about 10 years behind on Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. um my no, no no that's not i probably watched Twin Peaks in like 97 98 so but i still was like seven years behind on Twin Peaks. um so was i that was probably so my knowledge time. of lynch when i saw this movie was the elephant yeah because i didn't watch it when it was on television um was elephant man and blue velvet and eraser like i knew eraser head because it was one of those, I don't know, almost like mythic movies that you can never find anywhere to see, but you would see like images from and stuff. Um, so this is probably only like the third Lynch movie I'd ever seen, really. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I understood it. And I don't think that I necessarily cared for just the over overbearing like dirtiness of it. You know, his his focus on just like the filthiness of humans and the things that they do and like the way that he kind of pushes that like grime into into sex and into mm-hmm. music and into I don't know just everything really right. um so I probably haven't seen this so I saw this movie then the first time and I watched it one more time in probably the early 2000s I think and I haven't seen it since. Right. So watching it again, because I just watched it tonight before the quick cage. Um, some of it was pretty pretty revelatory to me. Like I had forgotten huge swaths of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I would argue that I like it now, but I think I appreciate it more, and I at least appreciate like what it became or what it led to. Um. I'm not a huge fan of the idea of like Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley as archetypes, I think. Right. I think it's a very outmoded concept. And like, I understand at the time um, that idea of like why he used that. And I understand like his love for that time period, but it feels really, it doesn't feel cool. Like they just feel kind of lame watching from a modern lens, I think. Maybe I always felt that way. I don't know. 
Uh, but they're finding it caged and earned. Like they I, I have a feeling that you always felt that way. If I, if just my gut instinct says that. Um, but I do think to your point about that specifically, just thinking about it, it's like we're four years away from Tarantino trying to make the same time period kind of cool in a way that it's the past. And and it is cool when it's the past. It's a relic. It's not cool when you're trying to, in 1990, still make it like a fresh archetype. Yeah. Does that make sense thing, what I'm trying to, like, the distinction I'm making? It, like, It does. I mean, the weird thing with, with Lynch, especially with this movie, is that he doesn't care about setting you in a time period. It's very anachronistic in that respect. So, you know, Nick Cage is putting on a snakeskin jacket and pomade in his hair and going out with his, you know, his lady who's got the the permed up blonde updo and the, you know, the tight dress. And they go to a punk club and dance to like thrash music. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So it's like. Right. It's got a very. It's very disjointed in that respect. And I think that I think that I appreciate the disjointed nature of it from the Lynchian perspective of like watching that man like craft scenes. Mm-hmm. But I think he's I don't think he's quite there yet where he's able to really like again, like Blue Velvet has some surreal aspects to it, but for the most part, Blue Velvet is a pretty solid narrative. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Wild at Heart has a narrative there, but it's more about the journey through that narrative as opposed to like getting from point A to point B. Sure. Like there's so much along the way that is meant to titillate and distract and unnerve and confuse like you as a viewer through the symbolism, through weird dialogue. I mean, they have, um, What's his name? The guy, um, I can't remember the actor's name. The Twin Peaks actor that um, lives in the the sawmill and fishes. He's the one that finds Laura Palmer. Jack Dance? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack Dance, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Dance is like a psychotic whatever. And it's just one of those things where 20 years later, like it's 100% something Lynch would do just to do it, which is have somebody say these cryptic things but he doesn't go all the way with that. It's like there still is a scene that's set around that. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just like something. Um, but Cage and Dern are really good. In, like all, all the actors are really good in it. Willem Dafoe, I think, steals um, the entire movie as a Bobby Peru, you know, the slimy, um, rotten toothed uh, assassin that's sent to kill Cage. Um, really like that incredibly unnerving and I don't know, super just creepy and effective performance by him, um, in the latter third of the movie. Um, the dialogue is kind of, kind of rough at times too. I mean, he wrote this movie really quickly. Um, so I guess what had happened was he was under contract with Dino De Laurentiis's production company and 
De Laurentiis had contracted him to produce two, to film two movies. <clears throat> and then he went bankrupt, De Laurentiis. So Lynch was kind of just like floating in nowhere. And it made the pilot for Twin Peaks and then um, was looking for another project. And a project fell through somewhere else, I can't remember. But then read this book with the idea that he was going to produce it and fell in love with the book. And so he crafted a screenplay really quick. And then basically like got the principal actors together and just started like filming it. So hmm. um that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. I didn't either. Again, like th- this is one of those movies where, you know, you ask me about my favorite Lynch movies, this will never come up except to be like Wild at Heart is not on this list. Yeah. So this is I had seen Blue Velvet in the early nineties, I guess. I think actually Wesley showed me that movie. Um and I really loved it a lot. Um, and Wesley, do you know? Do you know Wesley found out about Blue Velvet? I'm pretty sure this is how he found out about uh, Anthrax. Had a song that used um, Frank's like lines from Frank in Blue Velvet. Oh, the daddy wants to fuck and all that stuff. Yeah, all that kind. Of, yeah, I can hear your radio. You stupid shit. Like you know. Um, <laughs> right. And that's how he found out about it. So I think it was like '92 or '93. Wesley. So I watched that, and then from the podcast, Mike Bledsoe like um, showed me. I think from Chuck, he watched it the first time with Chuck. Showed me Twin Peaks. It was Zeke, actually. That was Zeke. Okay. Um, well, no, you know what? It was both of them, but it, it probably yeah. was. So, so then Bledsoe, because you know, like showed me uh, Wild at Heart. Like we we watched it one night. So that was actually, I don't think I, no, I had seen Lost Highway by that point because that was before this. So that was like 99 that I saw Wild at Heart. I've watched right. every single David Lynch movie at least two times after I initially saw it, if not more, except for this one. I watched it in 1999. I never watched it ever again. Um, so to your point, I kind of feel the same way. Like it's, I didn't, hated i didn't dislike it even i thought there was some really cool stuff in it but it doesn't engage me enough for me to ever want to sit down really and watch it again but the fact that you took more away from it actually makes me kind of almost want to i think that you'll so obviously both on the podcast and you know just in our personal lives like we have talked a pretty considerable amount about david lynch over the past three or four years yeah um and have watched a lot of his movies again, you know, went through the return and huge amounts of discussion constantly over the course of the run of that show. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that with that perspective, I think you will appreciate um, Wild at Heart more. Okay. And I definitely think you'll appreciate things from wild at heart a lot more because you'll look at it as um like you'll you'll be able to feel that the kernels of like you know things that you love from later on in his stuff right you'll you'll just see it and it's funny because like you'll see you see that man like just fall in love with laura Dern. like you can see why he cast her in so much right from that point on, because he just like, he's just absolutely infatuated with that woman, like through his camera lens. Yeah. And the way that she turns her head and the way that she moves and the way that she makes faces. 
like the, the this movie in the way if you want to call it Kill Bill and Ode to Uma Thurman from Tarantino, this is watching this is you know Lynch's Ode to Laura Dern. Um, and it's got a it's you know it's got it does a really good job of giving you that feel of like things that happen in the dark that you might not ever think about or experience like in broad daylight but it, it's Lynch so like some of those things happen in broad daylight mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like during the course of the movie um it's definitely not as focused so much as he becomes later on holding shots or building the atmosphere of a, of a place or a thing um to the point where like it's almost nonsensical like how long he holds the shot sometimes or sure. like right on the verge of losing meaning at all but then like he cuts and then it just leaves that impression like this is very much about Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern and their characters you know Sailor and Luke um and rightly so because I mean that's the adaptation that he was doing but it's just it's it's really cool to kind of see what would eventually become these things that like we love about him as a filmmaker you know you can see them like sort of really coming into focus and like gelling here as a movie so yeah not to not to go off topic quickly about that him holding shots it feels like he kind of does it at times for comedy's sake at different points he doesn't do it for that kind of horror aspect, that eeriness. I think until the f- the original like season two finale of um, Twin Peaks, when he does the Black Lodge stuff in that episode, yeah, it's almost like he does it there, and something clicks in his head, and then suddenly it's it's every single movie afterwards, except for Straight Story. I I also think it's things like filming the fan at the top of the stairs right in slow motion you know what i mean yeah. like yeah like finding this thing that you would see in your own house and not think twice about and somehow trying to infuse an air of menace to it mm-hmm. um and here <clears throat> the menace now th- this movie is beautifully constructed from a like a set design perspective um and from like a practical effect perspective because there's a lot of really unsettling things that you see in the movie um but all the menace comes for the most part from the principles you know it's from Mm -hmm. the people that are talking or the people that you're seeing and not so much the things that are happening around them or the world that exists around them like the world is still a predominantly safe place in wild at heart as opposed to a place of mystery and menace that I think that Lynch starts to see it as you know throughout the 90s and into the 2000s and into the present day so um so yeah so it was um if I'm remembering correctly this is where Wicked Game originates right yes yeah this is um I don't know if Chris Isaac wrote Wicked Game for this movie but I know that it was like premiered in this movie and Lynch did a video for him. He um, did the famous video for Wicked Game, right? That very famous like black and white with uh what's what, 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 
Christensen, Helena Christensen. Crawford? Oh, Helena yeah. Christensen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whoever. Track that that video one. was that video was played constantly on MTV during that time period. It was constantly. It's an amazing. It, it, it's a pretty amazing song, and honestly, like the way that it's used in this movie is probably the most perfect use of music against the scene. I mean, how do you quantify that? But it, it's definitely one of those things like where you're watching it, you're like, this is exactly the song that needs to play at this point in this movie. And it like makes absolute sense. So Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I. Oh, I didn't I even think about that. That's where the fucking, that's where Chris Isaac comes from in Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, of course. Of listen, course. Right. Like, um, the next time I see you, I'll bring you this Blu-ray. So the, there's something with this movie, and I don't know what it is, but it's got to be some manner of like rights or whatever, because you can't see, you can't find this movie anywhere. Like Lynch's stuff is all over the place except for this. Mm-hmm. So I had to buy this movie on an old, like one of it's like a twelve-year-old like Blu-ray, I guess, or ten-year-old hmm. Blu-ray. Right. Um. So I'll bring it over to you, and you can just watch it at your leisure. Oh, okay. You know, whenever you want. Right. Um, but you will be amazed at how many actors you see in this movie that David Lynch will go on to use in other roles and right. just the way that he uses them is um Well, what I'm wondering is because there's so many I looked at the cast listing, like because I always pull it up when you whatever movie you talk about, and I looked at the cast listing and there's so many of them like I'm trying when does he start filming Twin Peaks? So he had already filmed the pilot. He already filmed the pilot. So the pilot contained a lot of those actors already. So do you think because of the quickness of the shoot and everything that he just reached out to the people that he had just filmed the pilot with probably and was like, hey, can you come in and do this role? Yeah, like, probably. Uh, that, yeah. That, that's, that's what it seems like. Yeah. Um, with the idea that he really wanted Cage and um, Dern to, to be the actors in this movie. Right. Um, right. The the yeah, one I, um, the one I think is the funniest though is like he can't uh, Francis Bay is in this apparently in a small role as the madam yeah yeah um and but it's like he casts her I mean Francis Bay's as a character actor in sitcoms and all that kind of stuff is like I think pretty well known even by this point like you know for having a very specific look to her and all this other stuff you know um. But then he like uses her later in Twin Peaks, you know, um, in the end of the first and beginning of the second season and, and Fire Walk With Me and stuff like that. So that's interesting. But yeah, like David Patrick Kelly, I see is in it. Um, there, there's so many. Grace Zabriskie. Right. Grace Zabriskie, Jack Nance, um, um, of course, Cheryl Lee, um, you know, but uh, what is Cheryl and Fenn? Um, yeah, it's just so many. Harry Dean Stanton, which he hadn't used yet in Twin Peaks, but he would go on to use. Um Cheryl Cheryl and Fenn and Grace Zabriskie are probably in the two most disturbing scenes in, in the movie, I would say. Mm-hmm. And apparently they had to cut like a decent portion of it out. So um Harry Dean Stanton plays um Farragut, who is um Lulu's mom's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. At the time, he's a private investigator, um, but she doesn't believe that he's going to find because she doesn't want Lulu to run away with a sailor. So 
after he is supposedly on their trail, she goes back to Santos, who's like the um, criminal drug dealer or whatever, ex-boyfriend of hers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a point where Harry D. Sandy gets knocked out and is tied up and being tortured. And he's being tortured by um, Grace Zabriskie with um, the guy that played the younger uh, brother. Shit, what's his name? Um, fuck, I, I, I hate it when I forget these people's names and we've like, talked about and watched these things so many times. Um, the brothers that own the Great Northern. Um, he's the oh, younger the Horn, one. The Horn yes. brothers. So yeah, the yeah. Horns, uh, right, David, right. Pat- David Patrick Kelly, yeah. Right. So it's him and another guy, and they're like having tied up, and then they leave, and Zabriskie's the one that starts torturing him. And apparently that scene was super long in the original cut of this movie. Hmm. And when he first showed it, like 80 people got up and walked out of the theater. <laughs> but he was like, no, nah, I'm not going to cut my movie down. So he showed it again and a hundred people got up and walked <laughs> out of the theater. And he was like, oh, maybe I should take this part out. But um, a lot of critics hated this movie. Like Ebert was super critical of it and despised it. Um, oh, sorry, Owen Lieberman was really movie. critical of it. Um, and again, like the criticism is always, it's too violent, it's too um, graphic, it's the, the sex is too uncomfortable, but it's like, if he would have released this movie 10 years later, it would have been heralded as a classic, and it yeah. probably would um, I mean, isn't, isn't that almost like, to some degree, going to be, and maybe the sign that he is a true artist? Um, isn't that always going to be the legacy of Lynch that he might have been 10 years ahead of his time? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I mean, mean it, it, this, this movie won the Palm d'Or, so it's not like it wasn't appreciated. By controversially, him. though, right? Like, I remember, right. like, yeah. yeah, people people were booing it. Um, like, I remember reading about that, like, when we were doing the Palm d'Or episode, that this was not well received as the winner. Um, and again, like, I completely understand why, because when you're watching it, it's 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 just a little bit off from what he would end up perfecting. So it, it basically is one of those things where you gotta I I think you really have to appreciate David Lynch to appreciate this movie fully. Um and even then, like again, it's not my favorite Lynch movie and I don't even put it up there in the top like five or so. But you know, I think it's worth watching and I think that you having not seen it for a long time, I think you'll enjoy it and I think you'll take a lot out of it. Yeah. Cool. I think we spent like um, close to 30 minutes, maybe, like actually talking about the movie tonight, Frank. Yeah. So give me the scores. Um, It's an 8 out of 10 uh, Cage performance. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still a little too weird with his method shit sometimes, where it's a little off-putting. But for the most part, you know, I mean, it's a Sh- Sh- shamanic. Yeah, but yeah. Right. It's, it's a good performance. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie itself, I think, is also like a seven, seven point five, eight out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think when Lynch is like truly on, I, I don't think there's anyone better at making movies the way he makes movies. You know, that are like completely engrossing and unsettling and funny and whatever all at the same time. And I think this falls short in some some ways, just because I don't think that he's quite. I don't think he quite has it in him yet to like 
seal the deal on this movie. And maybe it's because it's not his story. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I was thinking that the whole time I was watching, I was like, I wonder if, you know, because apparently it 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 widely wild why it veers pretty wildly from the source material in some aspects mm-hmm. to the point where people were super upset that they would try and get the author of the book to um to criticize Lynch's right. adaptation. Yeah. And um the author of this the book was like, you know, I love it. Like I think it's amazing. Huh. Um, even though it's different. Right. Um, but you know, Lynch I think is at his best when he's telling a story that's inside himself as opposed to like telling someone else's story. So, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean like with the way that guy works and draws his ideas and his imagery we talked about this during like the lynch podcast like you know i think he i think it's like one of the few times i actually played some audio like as you know as like he talks about like you know fishing for ideas and it's like <laughs> he just you know because being in the transcendental meditation it's like he just spends a lot of time meditating and just like you know like lets ideas and images run through his head and he just talks about how he how he just kind of picks one out like you know like that's interesting and and thinks about it and you know um i mean to the average person it sounds like you know this weird old kind of hippie but like i i really wonder it's like the question I wanted to ask you about Lynch based off of everything you've said here, because I mean, I know this is about Nick Cage, but it's like, this is, a, this is about Lynch at this point, right. like, you know, this movie, um, this idea that like Lynch. So you have somebody like Lynch and you have somebody like Tarantino, since we talked about him a little bit, Tarantino shocks the system with two movies in a row right. and becomes an icon right yes and i would say is more well known than david lynch's by probably a casual general audience like his movies are probably more watched by if you poll people than lynch's movies are yes i i I think that i think the majority of of adults would know that David know David Lynch's name. Right. But I think the majority of adults have seen a Tarantino movie or multiple ones where maybe they've seen right, one and, and, and can like quote something from him. You know what sure, I mean? Sure. Sure. Like there's so many things that have been like ubiquitous over the past like yeah. 20 years that you just see on clip shows and stuff. T- Tarantino became more of a cultural icon than somebody like David Lynch. Um, I guess is my point. Like to start yeah, kind of like I, I agree with that. But don't you think to some degree, like in the short term, Tarantino influences film. Tarantino does change film, don't get me wrong. Like he 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 changes film in a lot of ways. But like his he has a it's a really strong like he does a couple things to change it long term, and he does a number of things that change it in the preceding or sorry, the, the, the next five to six years, right? Like copycats, like, you know, like more violence, like all these other kinds of things. Guy Ritchie doesn't exist without fucking Tarantino. Like all the, all these other directors that like, you know, and there's like, a number of people that don't exist. without Tarantino. Exactly. That's the first one I thought of, like just in terms of like, kind of like the quirky violence almost, you know, like, um, but 
Lynch is a guy that might not be 10 years ahead of his time. Lynch is a guy that might be 20 years ahead of his time. Like Tarantino is the guy for the for that time, I think is what I'm right. saying. And I think Lynch is a guy that's like 20 to 25 years ahead of his time. Agreed. Look, I, I love Tarantino. Yeah. I think Tarantino's bombast was immediately, while not like perfectly imitable, like people were able to kind of immaculate that style like immediately because it's based on noir and you know i mean it's it's like a pastiche of a bunch of different genres tarantino love i don't think you really see any influence from david lynch truly until probably the past 10 years in a lot of ways right and really it's in the horror genre so you and i watched the movie um right i watched it and then i recommended it to you to watch yeah um called fingers and it's this low budget indie horror movie from what like 2016 i think Oh, was it originally came out? Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, it's 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 a few years old at this point. Okay. Um that it has so many elements from Lynch, and it feels like some things that I feel like in Wild at Heart where it's like, man, like it's right there where I can feel what the director is getting at, but it just it it's not quite nuanced enough or it doesn't quite go far enough for whatever like there's just something missing from it and there's some other stuff too you know i mean like i we you and i have watched a lot of horror over the past three or four years now because of the podcast and you know i think we both watch a lot of horror movies just naturally and but like COVID every, for me yeah right, right. COVID. <laughs> every once in a while like you just see something in a movie like you see something in um think of a good example like like del toro will do it once in a while or um uh, the guy that did it follows, or mm-hmm. um, you know, like uh, Eggers, or like like one of those guys, where they do something and you say, like, man, like that that feels like so Lynchian, mm-hmm. but it really, like, to your point, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't something someone could do immediately. You know, like right. you couldn't imitate it. Because there's so much nuance behind what he's doing that I think it took a long time for people to even really understand what Lynchian was. Yeah, speaking of Edgar, it's like I I would argue that the lighthouse doesn't exist without David Lynch. Right. I agree with that. I think that's 100 percent right. And I think that, that I, I think that's what you're seeing is somebody right. taken that level of sensibility and applied it now to and there's no like real narrative structure to the lighthouse in the way like a traditional movie is. Right. But the lighthouse, I think, I mean, there is. It's like, there is, but it's still, yeah. There's a lot like, of questions about right. Passion. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, like well, I it's think a study that, of madness to some degree. So, it, like, yes, there's a narrative. There's characters. They have backstories. It seems whether they're true or not, and it ultimately has a arc, I guess. Like, but it's like right. Right, but there's like I mean, all this surrealism and all these other things. Like, I would argue that there's a lot of stuff that Astor does, and um, really like um, Hereditary, but also a lot in Midsummer. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That pulls a lot from that idea, and we right. we talked about this a lot. And I, I wish that I had any kind of like drive or initiative to actually or scholarly ability, but like I really would like to look at like that 
what we've talked about, like that horror of like small spaces or like the like creeping horror of just stillness or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like talk about how Lynch has truly pushed that idea out into the mainstream in ways that are like almost um like subconscious maybe or but like you see it and when you see it like you immediately recognize like in fingers there's that scene after um the villain beats the guy to death with a bat that you don't see that at all you don't see that happen where the camera just holds on that like abandoned storage container and it holds for just long enough to make you uncomfortable right but not long enough to be parody like it's like sure. perfect like the right. length of time that it holds and the whole time i was thinking like fuck man like this dude uh-huh. has just watched so much david lynch like he just understands that like right so. right that you just hold yeah i yeah <clears throat> and i mean it's it's funny like back in like whatever i don't know when this was now but i would say oh one oh two oh three somewhere in that time period i was writing something back then and it's like um that we talked about filming off and on with different friends of ours and stuff like that and like think about how much of that that we talked about like that where it's at least at least when i talked about how it would be filmed it's like so much of it is david lynch you know and it's like i think that lynch yeah like i I, i'd be fascinated to like try to come up with a term that's like the opposite of numinous like um but it's like he has some kind of like almost like preternatural understanding of what creates dread in people and maybe dread is the right word like if, if it's like you know um all in fear it's like dread and fear like but or something like that it's even worse than dread because it's like uncertain amorphous dread right not like oh my god i'm dreading this thing it's like i don't even know what i'm dreading or why i'm dreading it but there's yeah. something here that's like pushing it inside me just from you know it's 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 that subtle low electronic hum that he like infuses in scenes that sometimes is almost just like like at the back of your brain when you're watching these movies it's the lighting the coloring you know it's like yeah. everything feels just a sh- like a shade too bright yeah or the blacks are just a yeah. shade too dark you know and it's and you know why the electronic hum is there, right? It, like in his movies, like what, what he associates with it, he associates basically what Firefly refers to as the signal. Like it's it's just a representation of the signal. It is the way that the electronic mediums that we watch and view through have influenced a darkness within all of us. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, that's what the electronic hum, like at its core symbolic meaning to some degree is. Um, I, I think. I, I'm pretty sure. 
um if, if you go back and like look at it like it, a number of different things but um yeah like and i'm gonna just stop talking there because like we could talk about david lynch and this is why we did not do the special episode on twin peaks the return because i think we could right. talk about david lynch for hours and still not really get anywhere yeah because now we've done a 50 minute long quick cage Right. And barely talked about Nick Cage in the quick cage. Right. <clears throat> um, but it was um, enjoyable. Like, I, 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 I agree. Yeah, no, I loved hearing what you thought about Wild at Heart after all these years. And I want to watch it again now just to see because like, I've only seen it the one time because I was, I guess, nonplussed by it the yeah. first time. Like, um, And so, yeah, no. Um, when I see you in like, you know, uh, three months uh when it's warm enough outside for us not to like freeze to death um i'll be glad to get that from you i i actually have something to drop off to you on friday so you'll see me on friday for like five minutes okay is it a prop what <laughs> oh is it a prop i said oh i think you say it's a crops it's like crops? <laughs> it's i don't know what maryland. that means it's legal in maryland now plus i'm allergic so none of it matters this is satire folks Right. Satire. Um, no, it's not a prop. It's just, it's, it's something. I'll okay. tell you when we finish the thing. Okay. Um, but yeah, okay, cool. Because um, remember, we got to, um, I guess I'll quickly plug at the end of this. Um, the uh, primary podcast is uh, coming up here soon. We will be doing uh, a versus episode uh, where we will discuss Annihilation and Starfish. Um, the versus episodes on the primary podcast is where we take two movies that are thematically and kind of uh, contemporaneously, like you know, um, related in some way, and go ahead and discuss those and kind of do a deep dive on both of those movies as opposed to kind of addressing five movies. Uh, we'll end the month um, since we've been talking about horror elements throughout this episode. We will be doing the first episode of 10 throughout the year on the top five horror films in 1990. And um, then uh, next month after that, we will have our hundredth episode. Um, hmm? I said, <laughs> so many. <laughs> Which will be like four episodes or five episodes in one kind of, it'll be our longest episode ever probably. But um we will be uh over the past like next like three weeks or something like recording like basically like five different episodes and kind of putting them together uh but we have our first one friday night um it seems um yeah. so um so i guess i'll you'll drop that off and then go home and we'll um do the first segment out of our um yep. hundred episode so sure all right okay so thank you for listening everybody um as always if you have any feedback have any um input questions um contact us on instagram or facebook or two guys five movies at gmail.com uh and also remember the best way that you can help us is to go ahead and share and on any of your uh podcast apps go ahead and make sure to write a review or give us a star rating um, thank you for listening to Quick Cage tonight and have a great week. Yep, have a good night.